0: We're going to start a new series this morning called Prodigal, and uh, this, this story takes place in Luke 15, so if you have your Bibles, open it to Luke 15, but uh, really the whole emphasis of this story can be, can be summed up in, in one thing, is that what's lost can be found, what's lost can be found, and, and I don't know about you, but I am horrible with like, losing things and having no idea where they're at. Uh, I, I, it's not big things. Like I normally would probably not lose my kid or my phone, right? I care enough about those not to lose those. But, but it's like little things in life, like my keys. The other night, uh, a, a few months ago, I lost my keys and I couldn't find them. And I was searching everywhere in the world. And I actually searched for where they actually were but didn't see them. And then my wife lovingly pointed out to me where they were later on. But it was so, when you find something that was lost, it's so exciting, right? It doesn't even matter if someone else found it or, or uh, if it's months later, you're excited, right? And that's exactly what this story, prodigal, is talking about. See, prodigal, is the, word, the meaning of this word is actually uh, spending money or resources recklessly. It's being wastefully extravagant, wastefully extravagant. And Jesus told this story in a parable. Now, a parable uh, is something that Jesus told many times throughout the Scriptures. In in Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus told over 39, almost 40 parables. And he did this uh, to his people so that they would understand uh, eternal realities. So it was in a way that we could understand here on earth but it was in a way that had eternal implications. So every every parable that Jesus told... Always had a purpose, was always relatable, but meant more than just what we see in the here and now. And the prodigal son is probably one of the most famous parables that Jesus told. A lot of us know it uh, for a lot of different reasons. But Jesus used these parables so that we could understand because, right, we remember stories. We remember stories are easy to remember for us. Uh, When you're a kid, you learn these stories and you remember it all the way up from when you were an adult. If you, if you grew up in church and you heard like the Noah's Ark story and, and the, you know, David story and Goliath and all of those, we still remember those little details, right? And so Jesus knows us perfectly and how we're going to remember. And the prodigal son is one of the most important parables in scripture. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to take a look at each character in this parable. So the prodigal, which he, he could be defined maybe if, if we had to, is kind of the rebel in the story. He's the rebel. Then you have the prodigal's brother, and the brother is maybe kind of the rule keeper. He does everything right, or so he thinks he does, as we're going to see in week three. And then we have the father, and the father is representative of God's, God, God in our lives, God's perfect love in our lives, so some of us may see ourselves more in the prodigal. You might be more of like a rebel, a rule breaker. Some of you may see yourself more as a rule follower. But I think all of us are going to see in this story God's perfect love for us in our lives. And so I'm excited. We're going to take a look at uh, the prodigal, actually, this son, this morning. And uh, so again, if you have your Bibles, open it up to Luke 15. We're going to be in 11 through 21. And this is what it says. This is how Jesus starts this parable. He says, to illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Okay, so in chapter 15, Jesus really is addressing, uh, he's addressing a lot of people, but specifically he's talking to the Pharisees and the scribes. And now the Pharisees and the scribes, if you know anything about them, are kind of the religious elites. They, they, They view themselves as they're like better than everyone, they're holier than everyone, they do more good things, but really they're a bunch of hypocrites, right? They're a bunch of legalistic, hypocritical, judgmental, mean people. That's basically who the, who the Pharisees are. And Jesus is talking to them. Uh, he's, he's talking to all of us, but specifically he turns his attention to them. And it says, to illustrate this point further, so if we go back in Luke 15, Jesus tells a parable first of a lost sheep. Right? You have a hundred sheep. One sheep goes in this direction over here, and the, the shepherd goes and finds the sheep. He looks all over the place for the sheep, and when he finds it, he, he celebrates, right? He leaves the 99 to pursue the one, to find the one. Then the next story is, uh, or the next parable is a woman who had lost a coin, right? She had all these coins, she loses one. And, and she leaves everything aside, and she looks for this one coin, and when she finds it, she celebrates. Maybe you can kind of think of that like as a credit card, right? If you, if you have a credit card, 10 credit cards, and you lose one, you're going to look high and low for that credit card, right? And then you're going to celebrate by getting in more debt later on, right? Hopefully not. But the point that Jesus is making here, the point that he's emphasizing, is that we should rejoice when even one person comes to know Jesus. We should rejoice when even one person comes to be in relationship with Jesus and experience his love. And so, as we see here, the younger son, he says to his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. Okay, so this is kind of a, basically, he wants his inheritance early. That's what he's asking for. And, and uh, this is kind of, uh, kind of unfortunate because what the implications of this mean is that he doesn't really care about his father. He doesn't care if his father's alive or dead. He just cares about what his father can give him. Okay, so he, him asking for his inheritance early is saying, you know what, I don't really care if you're alive or dead. I just want what's due to me, what's owed to me, right? So that's the crazy thing. But then the crazier thing is that his father actually gives him what he wants, right? He actually gives him the inheritance. And it's like, uh, you know, think about if your kids came up to you and were like, hey, I want my inheritance now. After laughing for probably 10 minutes, straight in their face, you would say, no, no. I'm not going to give you your inheritance now, right? Like, that's not even realistic for a lot of us. We would have to sell off a bunch of our assets. We would have to refinance the house, get stuff out of retirement. That's not realistic for many of us. And this is the thing, is it was a sacrifice for the father in this story, right? Just to give up what your son is due, that's a huge sacrifice, yet he does it for his son. So this is kind of the setup, to the story. In the next few verses, we see what the prodigal son does. So that, that's in verses uh, 13 through uh, 14. But the, the three lessons we're going to learn this morning is, is this is the first one. The farther we wander, the farther away we'll be. Now, you might be like, duh, right? That's what I said when I read this point the first time. I was like, well, duh. But then I thought about it a, l- a little bit more. And you think, um, you know, how easy, when you make a bad decision, is it to make another bad decision right after, right? When you make one bad decision, when you, when you kind of, uh, w- when you go a little bit past what you probably should do, it's easier to justify going a little bit further, and a little bit further, and a little bit further. If you know me, uh, you know that I love donuts. That's not a, I probably mention it at every other sermon that I preach, but I love Donuts. And the other day, I was reminded that the farther I wander, the farther away I'll be from where I want to be. Because I I went to the store and I made the bad decision. I needed to go over here to get something, but I decided to go this way to walk past the donuts just just to see what they had, right? I just wanted to see their selection, see if it was good, see if it was worth it. And then I made the bad decision of stopping. Then I made the bad decision of not getting one, but a dozen. And then I made the bad decision. I shared with my wife, so don't judge me too harsh. Um, but then I made the bad decision of, of eating one in the car and then maybe a second one in the car when I got home. And then like four hours later and five donuts, it, it was a bad night, okay? I didn't feel great about myself but it was bad decision after bad decision because after I had already after I had already compromised, I compromised more and more and more and more, right? When you when you when you're gonna start a diet, right? You you say I'm gonna I'm gonna start next Monday, and it's like Tuesday morning, right? We, we do that. We, we say, no, because I want to make these bad decisions. and They're going to pile on each other. But the further we wander, as we see in this story, the further away we're going to be. It says this in, in verse 13. A few days later, this younger son, after he had gotten all of his inheritance, packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money and wild living. So the son gets his father's money a bad decision, right? We, Because really, you think about it, had he waited, he probably would have gotten more later on, right? That our money normally grows as we get older, and so he would have gotten more money later, but yet he chooses to take it early, and so he probably doesn't get as much, but that's the first bad decision. The second, he gets everything together, and he moves to a distant land, okay? that's 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 another bad decision. And while he's there, he then wastes all of his money. Bad decision. And then, it's not actually his money, it's his father's money. And this is where he gets his name prodigal, right? Because he's, he's extravagantly wasteful. He's totally foolish with the way that he uses his money and what he was given. You know, there, there, it's easy to judge, right? It's easy to judge the prodigal son. But I I want to point out that I love statistics. I don't know if this is correct, but I believe this. One study did um, that was done on people who had won the lottery. It says after uh, one, between one to five years, 70% of the people who win the lottery, all that money will be gone within one to five years. 70% 70% and that doesn't matter if it was $100,000 or $100,000,000. 70% seven out of 10 people blew all that money. It's because this is such a good principle, right? You, if you can't manage a little, you're not going to be able to manage a lot. You see this in professional sports too. How many professional athletes who have made hundreds upon hundreds of millions of dollars are, are broke at the end of their career. And you're like, how? How is that even possible? Well, it's because they didn't know how to manage a little. So who thinks that they could manage a lot, right? And this is the prodigal son. That he, he's not going to be able to manage a lot of money because he couldn't manage a little bit of money. He was always wasteful. It's a hard issue. It's not, it's not a material issue. It goes on to say this in 14 through 16. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding to the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. So he started out up here, and now he's like literally in the lowest possible place he could be. Not only did he blow all of his money. A lot of westerners miss this verse because we've never really dealt with a famine. But after he blew all of his money, a great famine swept over this land. So had he been wise after a few bad decisions with his money, when the famine came if he had his money he would have been able to survive, right? But but because he had blown it all, he didn't have anywhere to go. Didn't have anything to do. So he goes to this local farmer and he says, I need a job. I'm starving to death. And the farmer says, okay, you can be in charge of my pigs. You can clean up after my pigs. Now, the context of this story, that Jesus is talking to uh, predominantly a Jewish crowd. And if you know anything about pigs in the Jewish uh, culture, pigs are like the lowliest, most disgusting, detestable animal there is possible. And so how, how funny is it that, that this prominent Jewish kid is now feeding and cleaning up after these gross, gross... Pigs are gross physically, right? But for a Jewish person, they're also gross spiritually. And it says that even the pig's food uh, looks good to him. If you've ever seen pig food, it probably isn't that good, right? But, but no one gave him anything. He gets further away, he starts out up here, he ends up down here, bad decision after bad decision. The further away you are, or you go, the further away you'll be from your destination. The next thing that we learn from this story is it's not too late to turn back if you're willing to repent. So this is, this is where we get to the good news, this is where we get to the good news. In uh, high school, I went on a missions trip to inner city Dallas, actually, with our youth group here at, uh, at Alpine. And uh, one of the things that we did, probably the only fun thing that we did that trip was we went to Six Flags over Texas. And um, I do not like thrill rides. I'm the biggest wuss in the world, right? Like, little seventh grade girls are way more brave than I am. When it comes to roller coasters and we walk into Six Flags and this is the first thing that I see. Okay, this is called the Titan. And uh, it's it's ignore that ugly stadium in the background, by the way. But this is the Titan. And uh, it's it's one of the biggest roller coasters in the world. And it, get, it goes, you know, almost 90 miles an hour, and it goes, it's like six Gs around that bend when you come down, it goes underground. And I remember thinking, oh yeah, there's no way I'm going on that. Right literally when we walk into the park, everyone in the group I was in was like, let's go on the Titan first. And I'm like, oh no, and I can't say anything because I'm a junior in high school, and I, I'm i like tough and and everything like that. And And again, seventh grade girls were asking to go on it, so I was like... Okay, I got to go on it. So, like, I'm in line, like, seriously, like, almost sick to my stomach thinking about the next three minutes and 30 seconds that I have to go through on this ride that I do not want to go on. And I'm like, you could turn back. You could turn back. You can turn back. And as you go, and then you sit in the seat, and it clamps down, and there's no going back. <laughs> I mean, I could have been wailing and crying. They wouldn't have stopped the ride. That that ride is going to go, Right? And I just thank the Lord that that's not how sin is in our lives, right? It's not like the Titan. It's not like getting on the roller coaster. If you're hearing this message right now, it's not too late to turn back like it was for me on that ride. It says this in 17 through 19, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. See, in the midst of, of taking care of these pigs, he finally comes to his senses, right? He finally realizes how big of a fool he has been and he says why am I here when even I could go home and be a servant and that would be exponentially better than the situation I'm in right now right he comes to his senses I love that word he came to his senses because it it literally means that he came to a better mind he came to a better mind, and this happens so often, right? We're, we're living this life that's destroying us, and then we come to a better mind. And it's like, why am I, do, why am I putting myself through all of this pain and all this torture and all these things? These, some of them are, are, are self-inflicted, some of them aren't. But when we, when we self-inflict ourselves with pain, normally the things that come along, like a famine in this case, will totally destroy us. And so he comes to his senses and he says, I'm going to go home. What am I doing here? But he doesn't stop there. And this is, this is the second part of this point. It's not too late to turn back if we're real, willing to repent. And so he says, I've sinned against heaven, against God, and against you, my father. And I'm not even worthy to be called your son. You see, I love this because he takes absolute full responsibility of his actions he knows that he's messed up and he's going to go to his father and he's going to beg for forgiveness and he's going to say I'll even put myself in the lowliest position so that I can be in your presence again he was willing to give up his family name that may not seem like a lot to us today just like changing your name or giving up your family name but it was it was huge in that culture he was even willing to do that. And because of how bad he had messed up, he knew that he had to repent. Now, repent is kind of a churchy word, um, but basically it means to, to turn in the opposite direction of the way you're going. This is the Oxford Dictionary definition. This is actually a good one. The action of repenting, okay, sincere regret or remorse. Sincere regret. Or more remorse now it's not just regret and remorse it's sincere regret and remorse we're going to look at a verse in just a second in Romans two verse four, and this word for repent is metanoia, and metanoia means a change of mind. It literally you change your mind again. it says that he came to a better mind, he came to his senses, and he's coming to to repentance, which is a change of mind. Now, repentance for the Christian is vital from the beginning of your Christian life to the end of your Christian life. Repentance is not just something that you just do to become a Christian. You say, God, I'm sorry for my sin, and I I trust in you, and I believe in you. But it's, it's further than that, because when we do that, when we put our trust and our faith in Jesus, as all of you know who have done that, you're not this perfect person who just does everything right after that. And so we need to repent time and time and time again, that's what we do when we take communion, right? We, we take the, the bread and we take the, the um, juice and, and it's an act of repentance to God. It's something that we'll need to do over and over again. It's saying, God, I trust you more than I trust myself. God, I'm sorry for the things that I've done, for the sin that I've committed against you. Again, sin is just basically going my way instead of going God's way. Simple definition of that. It's missing the mark of what God has for us. And just like the prodigal son remembers his father's love and kindness, that's exactly what we can do with God. This is such a great verse, Romans 2, 4. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? You see, God doesn't bully you into a relationship with him. He doesn't say, you better do this, or I'm gonna beat you up, right? Like God, that that's not God's language. God's language, as we see in the prodigal and in Romans 2, his, his kind, tolerant and patient attributes toward us. It's, it's meant to lead us toward repentance. In other words, not to take advantage of God loving us, take advantage of God's grace for us and say, God, thank you for forgiving me, now I'm just gonna go do what I want, right? That's not, if we do that, we're missing the point. His kindness, his tolerance, his patience is meant to lead us toward repentance, toward turning around. And again, not through our own power, not through our own merit, but through his, through Jesus' on the cross. And this is the last good news that we learn from this story, is we can't, we can never outsin God's forgiveness. We can never out-sin God's forgiveness. You know, forgiveness is one of the hardest things in the world to do. When someone wrongs you, when someone hurts you, when, when, when they do something against you, Honestly, the last thing a lot of us want to do is forgive that person, right? We want them to pay, we want them to hurt. But when Jesus was asked by his uh, disciples, they said, "You know, how, Jesus, how many times am I supposed to forgive this person over here?" Seven times, and Jesus says, "No, not seven times, but seventy times seven times." And now if you're doing the math on that and then like you're keeping a tally, that's not the point. What Jesus is saying is that we're called to forgive without reservation until we're in the presence of Jesus in heaven, right? And and if that's hard for you, it's hard for me. It's hard for everyone, right? Because again, we want people to pay. We want consequences. But here's the truth is that they will pay. And we don't, have to, we don't have to do it, but they will pay for what they've done against you. God is perfectly just, just as he's perfectly loving and kind and tolerant. I love this idea of God's, God's forgiveness is so much greater than our sin. We can sin and sin and go our own way and do all these things, yet God's forgiveness is so much greater than all of that. Our sin pales in comparison To his forgiveness. So if you're living with shame, if you're living with regret, I'm sure the prodigal struggled with this, right? As with many of us do, for the things that we've done in our lives that we're just ashamed of, that we feel dirty, that we feel unworthy. Because of Jesus, all of that's gone, right? If you have a relationship in Jesus, if you put your trust and your faith in him, there's nothing that you can ever do. to to disqualify yourself from God's forgiveness in your life. This is what it says when the prodigal son is coming home. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. I want to look at the second half of this verse first, and then we'll come back to the first half. But it's important to note this, that the son followed through on what he said he was going to do, right? I mean, I know this is a parable, but the, but the son, he said when he was feeding the pigs in the mud and the grossness of that farm, he said this exact same thing. Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. And he said it when he comes back to his father. You see, so many of us, uh, it's easy to, to feel bad, to feel remorse, to feel regret, to say, I'm going to say this. But then things get a little bit better, you know, and that, and that feeling kind of goes away. But the prodigal son, he was genuinely broken, over what he had done. He knew that he had sinned against God and against his father. And, uh, and that sin led him to true repentance. And so when you're going to repent, don't, don't say, I'm sorry, and then continue to just do whatever, right? Again, you're not going to be perfect. That's not what I'm saying. You know, one of the things that I honestly struggle with is keeping my word. I wish I didn't. But it's something that I struggle with, and, and uh, all the time, you know, I'm challenged because I say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, yet I still just do whatever I'm sorry for. And that's not true repentance, right? It's only when we see a change in our life. And so this is what the son does, he goes to the father. But I think the best part of this is, is in verse 20, when he returns home to his father, and I love this, while he was still a long way off, this signifies kind of, I think of this as like, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, which means his father was attentive, his father was looking for him, right? He wasn't, his father wasn't just in the house, you know, waiting for his son to come back, and then when he came back, right? No, he was attentively looking for the son to return. Because he loved his son. You know, this, this uh, father, when he sees his son, he doesn't say, oh good, I'm about to give this kid a piece of my mind, right? I'll show him for taking my money and blowing it, right? He doesn't, he doesn't say that. It says that he was filled with love and compassion and he ran to his son. I love this idea of God running to us, right? Like we can only pursue God That's our mission here at Alpine Church, to help people pursue God. We can only pursue God because he first pursued us, right? Like, God isn't just sitting in the clouds waiting for us to come to him. And this was proved by him sending Jesus. Sending Jesus, Jesus, literally the name means God with us. Emmanuel, Emmanuel, right? God with us. God sent Jesus from the glories of heaven to us to meet us, not just halfway, but the whole way. See, the good news this morning is that no matter what we've done, no matter how far away we are, if we turn to God, God has been pursuing us the whole time. Right? And we, we do have a responsibility Again, I think through, through God's power. I think it's a gift to recognize your brokenness and your sin from God. But we have this responsibility just like the son had. The son could have just chosen to die, right, with the pigs. But he didn't. He, he understood the character of his father and the love that his father had for him. And so he turns and he goes back the other way and God meets him. God runs to him. Such a beautiful picture of God's love for all of us. And I hope that, you know, as we see this story, you know, a lot of us might be like, well, I'm not a, I'm not a prodigal. I, I, that doesn't look anything like my life. But this is the truth, is that Romans 6.23, it says that all of us, all of us, every single one of us, every single human who has lived or will ever live is, is, uh, is, is, Caught up in the wages of sin. And the wages of sin is death. But Jesus made a way for us to be in relationship with him. If we would come to him, if we would humble ourselves, that's a huge picture throughout this whole parable, right? Is humility. You have to have humility to say, God, you know what? I don't, I don't have it altogether. I, I can't fix my life. I've tried to run my life. It's just not working out. And so I'm gonna turn to you. I'm gonna pursue after you. And I know that you're faithful to pursue after me.